I'm Kwame Alexander, and this is a podcast inspired by a memoir that I wrote. Not a traditional memoir, y'all, but a collection of snapshots of a man remembering all the ways he's loved and wanting to share everything he's learned about love, which it turns out is not a lot, with his two daughters. This podcast is a poet grappling with love and longing and loss, with questions he's been too afraid to answer. No more sickness. So I've asked some fathers and sons and friends to help me to share their stories. And as we bring our first season to a close, I knew there was only one person I wanted to wrap things up with. Someone who has come up in every single conversation on this show and in every conversation about the memoir behind it. A memoir I thought I was writing as a father, but it turns out I was writing more as a son. So today's guest is my own father, Dr. E. Curtis Alexander who is a book publisher, an author, a historical preservation society founder, a pastor, a marriage counselor, a college professor, and he has a cosmetology degree, y'all. He told me he wanted to have something to fall back on in case none of the other stuff worked out. (laughs) As you might imagine, having your own father on the other end of a mic is an entirely different experience. It can be harrowing or hopeful. But I'll let you be the judge of that. So let's get it. I am here for the finale podcast episode of the first season of Why Fathers Cry with my father. How are you? Can't complain yourself. We don't have to be so formal. Well, I can't complain still. I'm blessed. Well, that's good to hear. I'm blessed, too. Let me just start off by saying I am giving you first right of editorial refusal for anything that's said in this conversation. Okay. (laughs) Being I'm last, I'm offended already, so we can proceed. I'm not waiving any uh, editorial... uh, uh, expectations or consequences or whatever the term is. And both of those are the wrong terms. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I admit that. So this is uh, episode number six, the final one of the first season. I've done five of these. I heard. Have you listened to any of them? No, I refused to because I wasn't first. So this is how this conversation is going to go. Not really. We're going to smooth out. The flow is going to get better. But I had to express myself. You know, one of the things I talked about in the memoir was how there were so many questions I wanted to ask you. And I just, I never did. Okay. And probably because it was, the questions, it was none of my business. Or I think one of the, you know, my narratives, as you say, Uh was that I was afraid to ask him. Well, it's kind of hard to say because I don't remember that uh, lack of feeling that you could ask questions because I didn't think we had that kind of household. But I'm the father and you the child. So maybe you should have expressed yourself in a different way. I learned how to express myself from you. Yeah, right, but I got that from my father. So you learned from me, from your grandfather. That's a family characteristic. So when you put that in the memoir, I couldn't have been honestly offended because that's another generation of Alexanders. Well, one of the things, you know, I've talked about a lot is that I never, as a child, as a young adult, heard you say, I love you. Right. And I wonder what your recollection is of that. And secondly, what's your recollection of your parents saying that to you? I never thought about it. It wasn't a need that I had because they were, man, we were forced to eat three meals a day, meaning that uh, dinner time, my mother called me in from the playground playing basketball mm-hmm. to eat dinner. 
it was a requirement that we all ate dinner as a family together. Okay. If daddy was at the table and the children weren't in place, that wasn't a good time. So I never knew a bad time because everybody knew what the requirements were. We ate family together uh, at one time. It wasn't no coming in and out and all of that. And uh, that was a way of life. So I knew no other way than to, when I got a little older, I felt I could resist a little bit when my mother actually came to the playground to say, it's time for dinner. She only had to say it one time. Matter of fact, when you got older, it was like, you don't want your mother coming out telling you <laughs> to come in, it's time to eat. Right. Because I was, when I was 12 years old, I was six feet tall, so. That was embarrassing if she did uh, that. Yeah, no, but she didn't, she didn't have to do that often because uh, it wasn't necessary. And when you get older, or even during that time, you know, I didn't have to get older to think about the fact that a lot of my friends that I was playing ball with, they didn't know whether they were going to have anything to eat at home when they got home. And they thought it was kind of strange. But I had no idea in terms of that. Because we were all from the same community. We were all playing ball together. And I was blessed beyond my comprehension or understanding where it became normalcy. Normalcy, like breathing. So so this idea of what you're saying is that you didn't need to hear I love you because you saw it and felt it. It was just a normal thing. Love was action. Right. You know, my daddy came home every day. The only time I remember him being away from home is when he went to Knoxville, Tennessee, Rogers Memorial Baptist Church. They had a This Is Your Life, a Ralph Edwards TV series called This Is Your Life for my uncle Lorenzo. Other than that, I don't ever remember my father not being at home after work at night. So the the whole idea was I learned not by a book or a test, but by living in the household that I was blessed to be born in, literally, because we lived in the house that I was born in. They didn't have hospitals uh, in Norfolk County, now called Chesapeake at the time. So the whole concept of love was the actions of both parents. And I don't know, put it like this, today I don't have a definition for unloved growing up. I can't think of examples or instances, etc. I've never <clears throat> felt like I wasn't loved. Like I, I knew that. But what did you call love? I call love um, being able to to stay at the Stouffer's Mayflower Hotel. <laughs> you know, I call love um, eating and not liking your your mustard, macaroni, and cheese, but but you cooking dinner for us. I call love us playing ping pong. I mean, love was there. I mean, I'm never I've never questioned that. Is it important to hear the words? Well, you have you are the person to answer that because I don't know the answer because I never needed to do it. Got it. What happened in the Air Force? You shared this story with me about what you know how you knew you were loved. You gave me an example. I just I could give you many examples. Right. I gave you an example. My father never wrote me a letter. Uh. My mother wrote me every day. So if you experience basic training, and for veterans, they know what I'm talking about. Man, during mail call, if you don't get a letter from somebody, you're the joke of the squadron. Hmm. Because mail call was a big deal. <coughs> and there were fellow airmen who didn't get mail call, man. You need some water? No, I don't need any water now. That you ask me questions that bring back memories, which okay. brings back uh, uh, feelings. Right. So it's not something like a, a verbatim thing, or something that you practice. Right. You got to bring up 
questions that really don't have any significance. Because when you talk about a concept such as love, uh, my life was one of being love. So to uh, acquire academic credentials, those are kind of like questions that other people ask. I never have been asked that question. Got it. Uh, okay. The, so it brings up a different kind of response for me other than giving you uh, an erudite answer. Right. Talking about eros, uh, agape, etc. Man, uh, no. So your mother wrote you once a week and your father bought the envelopes and the stamps. And took it to the mailbox. One of the things I remember is that in our household, when I think about the music we listen to, I listen to hip hop on my own. I don't remember music being played in the house. I remember when it was played in the car, I want to say it was gospel music, but rarely was played in the car music. This is my memory now. I know we had a record player. I don't remember records being played. We had a stereophonic. We had a stereophonic, big old thing. Right. That I never remember us using. But this is the music that has had the most profound impact on my life in general. And as it relates to you, this is the music that I've associated with you. So I'm just going to read this piece. It's called The Gospel Truth. And I just want to get your reaction to it. Okay. Kneeling in the musty attic, looking for our old record player inside cobwebbed milk crates filled with moldy textbooks, dissertations, and his old fiery sermons on cassette next to a green milk crate of credit cards and expired passports, I discovered jazz for the first time. Duke Ellington's heaven, nestled right between Nancy Wilson and Miles Davis, the three of them side by side, trumpeting a kind of sentimental wonder. It is up here in this sacred space where I find the melody to build a dream on, where I rejoice, where I realize that my father may not be all blues, where I fall in love with him for the first time. Well, that's a whole other story. See, that that came about, we didn't have uh, uh, LPs. They were 78s at that time, LPs in the Air Force. The only reason I had one of the best collection of jazz and rock and roll, mostly jazz and gospel music in the attic was because it helped me maintain my sanity in Rapid City, South Dakota, Ellsworth Air Force Base, 2,000 miles from home. The church wasn't what I thought it was in the Air Force because keep in mind you could count the number of, of the only black people in Rapid City were affiliated with the base. They were airmen who were staying in town rather than on the base. But the whole idea I learned from my comrades in the Air Force, the ones from Chicago, Detroit, and New York. I learned about Malcolm from a friend of mine named Scott who lived in Harlem. I learned about Mahalia Jackson was on LPs, not to listen to her on the radio, in my home, because we didn't have a record player, let alone a stereophonic, uh, my favorite artist was Billie Holiday. I never heard of Billie Holiday, but the range, when you meet people from different places, different backgrounds, and everybody brings something to the encounter when we were uh, serving in the Air Force. Uh, so I learned, we learned from each other. So that's where those records came from. Records that you can go on, I would suppose, eBay now and sell them for big bucks <laughs> because they were first editions. Right. These weren't used stuff. They were brand new. I was a member of RCA Record Club. Right. Capital Col Records. Columbia Records and Tape. Columbia Records. Right. Right. Uh, I can't think of any other uh, big company. But what I'm saying is that's what I did when, when my fellow Air Force brothers were drinking and smoking, etc. I was 
listen to my LP. I bought a new stereophonic record player. I didn't have a record player, a 12 by 24. I had a stereo with two speakers on the end. So that's how I used my time, reading, writing, and listening to music. So that's a, that's a prize collection that you have now. Yep. Got it. Got it. Mm-hmm. Well, I love listening to those records. Every time, I mean, every time I see Ella live in Berlin, every time I see the album cover or I see Nancy Wilson today, tomorrow, forever, whenever I see these albums, I think of you. Okay. It's, it's a good feeling. One thing that I was raised to do was to learn to acquire knowledge to become a better person and to acquire the ability to make a better living. My father, I'll never forget this. Things were horrific in terms of segregation. You had black people in my community who had completed college, who had college degrees, worked at the post office. Well, the post office was the best job for a black person who had a degree, even though you didn't need a degree. The whole idea was my father always told me, he said, son, work hard, study hard, do your best. One day things will change. Now that was a mythology. You're talking about what I heard rather than I love you. Right. Son, study hard, do your best, because one day things will change. So if you want to hear something I heard over and over rather than I love you, I guess my daddy felt that showing how he felt about us, there were six of us. Right. And not only built the house before we were born, so I never knew what a landlord was. Majority of the people in my community were renters. Majority of my friends knew what a landlord was, even though they didn't call him a landlord, because their parents were renters. Got it. So that's an example of... Okay. So let's talk about this, because you talked about acquiring knowledge and learning, and you talked about your vocabulary, and presumably one of the first ways that you did this was through reading. So what was your experience your life like as a child, as a young adult with reading? Okay, first of all, I could read first grade books before I got into first grade. Dictionaries, encyclopedia, I believe it was Americana or something like that. So the sellers came through the community selling Jet Magazines, Pittsburgh Courier, Afro-American, the journey guy was based in Norfolk, and encyclopedias. And later on, when President Kennedy died, pictures of John Kennedy, President John Kennedy. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea was reading. So my question then is, I have called it, I mean, it's not an obsession, but it felt like that as a child that books were books were everything books mattered the most they were the most important thing in our lives and i i've shared the story and that illustrates it about the car accident on the new jersey turnpike and you may remember it differently but i remember you telling me to get out and pick up all the books that were on the turnpike i to tell you to get out that was the only way you were going to pick up the books <laughs> That had spilled from the trunk. Right. The car had turned over twice. But when I look back over it, or even at the time, you know, we had been blessed. The car turned over twice. Right. No, all of the myriad of cars coming behind us on the turnpike before exit six, nobody ran into us. Uh, the whole idea was books were a part of our business. We were having a, a book fair called the African Harlem African Heritage Book Folk. African Heritage Book Expo. Book Expo, thank you. In Harlem at Harriet Tubman School, 126 and uh, 7th Avenue. And that's what we were on a mission to do business. And we did it every year uh, for 10 years. And the whole idea was 
everybody was all right. We were blessed in terms of that. Right. So the next thing to do was to get the items we were selling, books, to retrieve them, and the rest is history. My theory is that, and I want to get your, your commentary on this, my theory is that books, literature, are the way, are a major way that you love, or at least the, the way you love me. And a big proof of that or evidence of that is how I deem our relationship having changed or grown <laughs> after the Newberry Medal. What are your thoughts? No, that wasn't, that was a big event, but uh, it only grew because we, our commonalities had changed to another level. So that, that was kind of a normal progression in terms of, of the relationship. Uh, the Newberry had discovered what your mother and I knew all along. We didn't know how it was going to manifest itself. But your mother was a, a folklorist. She was a storyteller. And you, you uh, thought everything she was saying was literally the gospel truth. And you just bought into it. You didn't have to be encouraged to love the word. You were born with the word. And you loved every moment of it. And your mother loved every moment of doing it. And not only were you taught to love the word and to master the word, but you were taught to share and pass it on to your next sister who was three years later. And then you would pass it on again to your next sister who was three years later. So as a consequence, not only did you learn to acquire the knowledge for yourself and to enjoy the moments, but you learned that you had a mission to share it with others. And you, you bought into it, as they say, hook, log, and Hook, sinker. line, and sinker. Yeah, hook, line, and sinker. Thank you. We will be right back. I love fly eyewear. I mean love. To the tune of 32 pairs and counting. But I'm about to add the pH de resistance to the fold. My own limited edition frames. That's right. The Haiku Collection. Created in collaboration with the incredible team at Kirk & Kirk. With over 100 years of history in the optical industry, the Kirk family continues to innovate and push the boundaries between fashion and eyewear. And this new line is at the forefront of fly eyewear. Flywear. Oh, yeah. Handcrafted in Italy, each style comes beautifully packaged with an original haiku penned by, that's right, me. The Haiku Collection, coming in early December 2023. Head to kirkandkirk.com slash Kwame, K-W-A-M-E, and sign up to receive news and updates on the Haiku Collection eyewear, including VIP pre-order access. Your specialness came from the fact that you were treated special, and you thought you were special, and that nobody could change it, so you just exhibit the myriad ways in which you were special by uh, developing your own understanding of what we call Kumba and Kwanzaa. Creativity. You, yeah, creativity. So you thought it was like a natural way to be to use the words that you had acquired, the stories that you had acquired, that you love reading, and uh, the result is what we see today in terms of your affinity for the written word and understanding how words can make a difference, how words literally are power if used properly. So you were one of those readers who love reading. For example, when you were six years old, 
Walker Memorial Elementary School, Fayetteville, North Carolina. I was had acquired a job as director of staff development for education district four, which was comprised of 18 school districts. And one of the first things they had for first graders, the first child to read 100 books would get a shirt. And you had no idea what 100 books was. You just knew they were books, they had words, they had pictures, and you could read them and people liked to hear you read, starting with your parents. And you were the first one in the first grade class to read 100 books. They had a year to read them, you read them in a month. I remember the t-shirt, the white t-shirt with red letters. So this, this love and appreciation and commitment and the excellence of words. This is a this is a significant thing in my life. And so to go back to that question that I was asking, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask it in a different way. Okay. When I won the Newberry Medal, which is the ultimate sort of display of excellence in words, at least as it relates to children's literature in America. When I won the Newberry Medal, the difference in mommy the day before I won and the day after was minimal. Like she was the same person. My feeling was that you changed or maybe it was my perception of you that changed, but I'm curious, what did the winning that award do for you as my father? Oh, what what did it do for me? It showed that, see, you were the first to be a part of an experiment that we had in terms of we as in mommy and you right in terms of our children weren't going to be average uh they weren't going to be better than anybody else but they nobody else was going to be better than them and and you showed achievement that what we were doing with you was being accomplished at a national level and obviously later on at an international level we didn't know what we were doing, but we know we we knew we weren't going to do the same thing. And you assisted us, whether you liked it or not, <laughs> because I don't recall you complaining about the acquisition of knowledge, the use of words, because on one occasion, you may remember, you did a term paper in high school and the teacher gave you... Uh, a less than stellar grade, a failing grade, and you showed it to me, and we went over to the school and talked with the teacher, and to make a long story short, the teacher changed the grade to an A. But what was that about? That was about the fact, man, that you were talking about, uh, you had read Things Fall Apart, Timothy Achebe, Franz Fanon, Richard of the Earth, towards the dying colonialism, et cetera. Lucia Clifton was like, just another name with a bunch of books that you love reading. So you could call the role. And they didn't expect that uh, because one thing, when you were in the fifth grade, I believe, no, seventh grade, at any rate, at a forensic contest, the two judges gave you third place. And we asked, why and they told us that your presentation was like college because you were presented a county cullen poem well the problem was she didn't know who county cullen was but she knew it wasn't grade school stuff what is africa to me copper sun or scarlet sea right heritage yeah but you had access to those books so it wasn't like oh these books are for college you weren't in college you weren't in high school You've been elementary school, but so you didn't draw any lines as to what you could read or what you could not. Either you could read the books and have some understanding, or you couldn't. And you made those selections yourself. You had thousands of books during that time, hundreds of children's books to choose from. And you made the selections. 
when you, it's interesting that you use the word I was an experiment because right I get it it makes sense I mean I, I like to say that I was sort of you remember the movie The Manchurian Candidate I heard about it I was created to be exactly who I was I was nurtured and developed and there is no um wondering how I got to this place okay you follow me let me put it like this you were raised to be thankful T-H-A-N-K-F-U-L as a human being but as a human being with a brain you were raised to be a T-H-I-N-K-E-R which had no limits so there was no path charted for you you charted your own path because you enjoyed the acquisition of knowledge you enjoyed making presentations you had no hesitance about being selected in your classroom you relish being the spelling bee champion at Crestwood Elementary School. Right. If there was a spelling bee, you entered, you knew words, you like words, you like learning new words, and you like spelling words. So you expected to win. So the story goes on and on. If you have anybody in Patterson, New Jersey, who took any of my classes, they can tell you what I told them between 1972 and 1974, that my son is being raised, he's a part of an experiment. (laughs) And the rest is history. This experiment has created this extremely successful writerly career that I and fortunate to have. Contrarily, when we look on the personal side, emotionally, um, and of course, you know, I want to preface any of this by saying, if you don't want to talk about it, you just say you don't want to talk about it. Which, How about that? Romantically, mm-hmm. I've been through, you know, two I'm not going to say failed marriages because there were really good parts of the marriages and, and, and I still, I have love. Um, but the marriages didn't work out in the traditional way that you marriages work out. Um, and so my, I guess my question to you is, did you consider yourself a romantic person when you were dating in college and when you were courting mommy? Well, your mother could answer that best. Uh-huh. And unfortunately, uh, she's not here. Uh, so I can't answer that, but she thought so, and that was the only thing that mattered. Got it. You know, I don't recall y'all holding hands, but I mean, I'm a, I was a child. What, what do I know? Here's the romantic thing that I remember for whatever this is worth. Okay you would go and get mellow yellow sodas on Saturday night. So y'all could watch Saturday night live at 1316 president street. And y'all would sit down together and watch Saturday night live. That's what I remember. Is that my truth? What's the, what's the real truth? It's, It's part of a lot of different things. For example, she loved the water. So whether we'd be in St. Croix, Jamaica, Coney Island, I would go out in the water with her. Then she developed a mastery of water. Mm-hmm. And so after that, you wouldn't have seen me in the water with her. I would have been on the shore under umbrella mm-hmm. reading or writing. She would have been in the water. So you never saw us swim together either. Right. So that kind of thing. But I was there. And when I was thought she no longer needed me. So it would be things like that. It, see... People remember bad times, but can you remember a time when there was something 
that you needed in growing up, whether the clothing or going somewhere or etc. Do you remember not being able to get it in the household that you were raised in? Right. You so those are questions that each of the siblings have to ask themselves. We're going to wrap this up. There are a few questions that I've never asked that I, I'm curious about. Okay. You used to call me Jim as a kid. I never asked why. Uh, that was a term your maternal grandfather used. Who are you See, talking you, about? Uh, Granddaddy Smith? Yeah, your maternal grandfather. Okay. And... You give nicknames that that are bigger than you to remind you of who and where you came from because he showed a great deal of affection for you because you were that kind of grandchild. Man, you were an affectionate. You, you, you learned how, because you listened. You were obstreperous in many ways, but you were a loving grandchild you know, grandparents love loving grandchildren. And it was as uh, simple as that. You just turned 82? Going on 83 now, man. So you, you're, you are aware, although you said I didn't tell you, that Nandi and I were estranged. I don't even like saying that word, but seeing as though we've gotten to a point where we're on a healing path now. Um, you're, you're aware that we were estranged for three plus years and and you know that I've had my, my marital woes. As my father, what kind of advice do you have for me? Uh, be positive. Make the best out of a bad situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, do whatever you need to do uh, authentically to make the person understand that this is a genuine effort. Reconciliation is the best. Or you can reconcile, but in a way of being positive. It may not be a literal reconciliation, but put the best face on it by being kind and being nice to people. And then the rest is on them. Make the taste, the bad taste, a better taste. But the end result is still the same. But it's a it's a good way to do separation and it's a good way to do reconciliation and if things are irreconcilable, they don't have to be horrific yep. in terms of how it's done. Got it. So actually you, you grow stronger. Don't listen to other people, listen to yourself. If you're a good person, you're gonna make it work in a positive way and if you're not person can say I told you so so don't be one of the I told you so people be one of the people hey look this is me because you know how you know how you were raised and it's expected of you to uh, you know keep the tradition going did you read the memoir I read it twice. At first, I read it in Atlanta airport, six-hour layover on a flight that you arranged. So you can imagine how I felt. But the whole idea, make use of the time you have rather than complain. Okay. What would you think about it? I thought it was interesting. Uh, interesting word choice. Okay. No, that, I, that I, I'm supposed to be upset about some things. Right. But that's normal, people. I'm not a normal person. I can't get upset. If I 
if you were raised to be a thinker and a free thinker, uh-huh. why should I years later complain about your understanding of this or that? Because first of all, like like one of your things is not seeing us whole hand. Mm-hmm. We held hands from City Hall because didn't have enough money in Norfolk, Virginia to Marshall Avenue, 2226 Marshall Avenue. If anybody knows Norfolk, that's about six miles or more. We held hands from City Hall after gotten the license, didn't have enough money to take a bus. We held hands from City Hall to her house, holding hands, uh, things you do at periods in your life. So, at some point, you have to do more than hold, holding hands. They ain't going to pay no bill. Holding hands aren't going to achieve some things unless you're holding hands together to do something. And when you look back over your life, everything that your mother and I did or tried to do or accomplished, we did it together. So literally, we may not have been holding hands but we were holding hands together to accomplish uh, what we were able to do. So the whole idea of what you call holding hands, that changes over a period of time. Right. I guess for me, I just, and maybe I'm just an idealist or or a hopeless romantic. Mm -hmm. Well, I know I am. I want to be able to hold hands forever. I want to have both of them. I want to have both. I want to have the caring about each other, the looking out for each other, the vision, the dreaming together, and I want to have the romance. Yeah, but romance has different definitions. So that's oh. you. You are entitled to that. You just have to find a partner who's in sync. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, at her funeral, I remember feeling like, and I, I remember feeling like. I didn't want to be there. Like I, I didn't want to have to deal. I didn't want. I didn't want her to have passed, and I didn't. It was hard to be there. I remember feeling like maybe you didn't want to be there, and I thought that because of how you reacted or how you responded to Granddaddy's passing. And I, I remember you saying that you, you had your last interaction with him, and that's how you wanted. To, that that's how you were going to leave it. You can't compare that. You can't? Apples and oranges. I've never told you that because I've always thought about myself and my own response and reaction to mommy's passing. Right. But I can't imagine what it's like to lose somebody you've been with for 50 years. You can only imagine when you, when it happens. So I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm sorry for your loss in a, you know, I I mean, how do you deal with it? What do you do? You don't have to be sorry for my loss because but I am. Uh, uh, I don't think that's necessary because on two occasions, mother was 80. She had a birthday. I'm on my way to the International Book Fair, Black Radical and Third World Books. In London. In London. So I said, uh, mother, we had a talk. She said, I'm looking down. She said, the old folk would say that Mother Earth is calling. I said, look, don't go anywhere till I get back. I got back on a Thursday. She was in the hospital. And she died on a Sunday. But think about the prayer I prayed. I prayed that if God wasn't going to heal her, not to let her suffer. Okay, years that's a heck of a prayer for your mother. Your mother, my wife of 51 years and uh, 53 days, mm-hmm. uh, she told me the week before she died, she said that she was tired and she was ready to go. Mm-hmm. Now you can tell somebody you're tired and ready to go and I'm going to pray that she be kept with us. Right. That's kind of selfish. Right. Okay. It was kind of selfish for me 
say that about my mother. Right. But the, the whole idea is that she, I, I, I just felt that she was such a good person that she didn't deserve to suffer. And obviously God felt the same way because all of the children were back at the time when it happened. And all of y'all is one of the most challenging weeks of your, through your lives because y'all were in the hospital. But your mother was a warrior. She was a fighter. Uh, she didn't tell y'all what was going on during the last days. She didn't tell your aunt, Barbara or Ruth, but she told me. And so I think about the uh, the good times, and this is why this is why it may sound strange for a lot of people. Her ashes and my ashes are going to be put in the same uh, cemetery, different graves, of course, mm-hmm. uh, because that's the way I feel about it. Thank you for reading the book. Um, and I'm supposed to say thank you for writing it. No, right? no, no. I was just going to say I'm I'm sorry if I offended you in any way or if there were some parts of it that, you know, I'm, I should have let you read in advance or let, you know, because I've heard that from my siblings. and, well, and that Right. And, They're your siblings. I'm your father. But most importantly, I'm just I'm grateful that you sat down to talk with me and and share it with me and, and, and let me, and let me ask the questions and, you know, I'm just, I'm just really appreciative. But I've been talking to you your whole life. Like when you left the car that your grandfather gave you on the campus of Virginia Tech. Well, we got to talk about that. No, because I'm talking about you had like, this is (laughs) like, we haven't been talking. Did I, was I outraged? Did I physically fight you? Did I, can you you don't recall anything I said about when you told us about that? What I am suggesting is uh, what I'm saying is uh love is shown in different ways. If you are man enough to leave the car on the campus that was given to you, make sure the next car you get you buy it yourself. Thank you. It's, I appreciate that. That's all I'm saying. And all I'm saying is you and I have had at least from my vantage point, real more authentic conversations in the past six months, ever since we sat down at the museum in Nashville, not Nashville. Where were we? Uh, Birmingham, Birmingham, Brian Stevenson, Museum. Brian Stevenson. Right. So I'm just grateful for that. And, and that you sat down to talk with me um, today. So I appreciate it. But I'm more appreciative of the fact that, I didn't have to talk with you in the in a jail house uh, before you get to jail or probation office and all of that. Talking to you, you know, is helping me understand. I get to understand you a little bit more. I'm understanding myself a lot more. Um, so just thank you and I love you. Yeah, all all that's good. But put it like this. <laughs> I never have... You can have your feelings and your thoughts. You can have the freedom. Come closer to your the mic. Brain. Come closer to the mic. Your brain. You can have... We want you to have that freedom. That's why this... A lot of crazy stuff you write... Crazy stuff I write? Yeah. But a lot of people like it. People like drama. And depends on how you interpret drama but the point is you're trying to make a difference in the lives of young people and it appears to be working at many different levels and many different parts of the world and they are speaking back to you so we when I say we I'm talking about your your mother and I we never told you all of what we thought about what were you on the Newberry was just 
and icing on the cake. When I taught children literature at the college level, I taught about the Newberry, the Laurie Ingalls Awards, and all the other awards, because children literature was one of my specialty. And for you to, to get it at that, that age, talking about a sport that I love, and talking about family, family, hey man, uh, you've done a lot of wrong, but the wrong didn't hurt anybody but yourself. It hurt us, but we didn't, we didn't moan and groan. We gave you the kind of support. I'm not going to say love because that's what you want to hear, but not today because if we haven't done it in 55 years, uh, keep dreaming, keep writing, keep being yourself. This is the Why Fathers Cry finale episode. I've been talking with my father, Dr. E. Curtis Alexander. Hope you all have enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it, Daddy. And thank you for doing it. Uh, I was supposed to say thank you for asking. But, man, you are concerned about other people other people's children and making their lives better and offering your contribution. That's the thanks that you're giving to us. Yep. Because you're giving back what your mother instilled in you in your own way. You're not a robot, an imitation of somebody else. You are yourself and we are proud of it. This is the love, y'all. I'm Kwame Alexander. Thank y'all for tuning in to the Why Fathers Cry podcast. Have a great one. Why Fathers Cry is a Big C Entertainment production hosted by Kwame Alexander. Produced by Sarah Grace McCandless. Post-production by Jeremy Brisky at Burst Marketing. Theme music, St. State Street, composed by Joshua Gabriel and Bryant Terry. Learn more at whyfatherscry.com. Special thanks to our guests, our sponsors, and to you for listening wherever you get your podcast. We appreciate you. <laughs>